the rhythm that is uh, needed. So what, what's her what's her view in in this point about driving focus in terms of segmentation, positioning, um, etc. So so with you know I think without answering what should the goals be for any given company, right? Because that's always unique. I think in terms of um, taking the time to think it through. I think, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things to get in the time out to think about, you know, what do we need to change? What really matters and how these priorities shift? But I think the other thing that often uh, plays a big role in there is trying to make sure that people actually have the information they need to be able to make those decisions. Right? And if I, if I start with a, a detailed example, right? If you take uh, product management and when people are thinking about what's on their roadmap, at, at this point, it's one thing to say, you know, we should uh, add these features to let us do a new vertical. Uh, or maybe you've got a decision of maybe if we add, you know, these different features, that's going to make our implementations faster, right? Just just to take like a general thing. Right. And I think yeah. starting to come up with a way to um, bring these first ideas from the whole team, but then also to start to have the data that would let people uh, make that trade-off themselves. Right and fitting it into the plan, right? And and I always like to think, even if it's not right, because you know, you know, these things are difficult to estimate, but to start thinking about what you know, what would that mean, right? If we could do a faster implementation, you know, what does it cost us? Does it does it save us like a week of a customer support person, or does it save us a month? Again, you know, something that lets us get into a new vertical that even if we can't quantify it, we know is going to be much more valuable for the company because now we've proven this works in multiple, right? And I, th and I think the first thing is just making sure that you're able to do these trades, you know, get some of the operational and financial data together to make those decisions. But I think it needs to flow all the way down the company, as you mentioned, right? That, you know, you take the big picture thing of, you know, maybe it's how do we get into this vertical? And then it flows all the way down through the organization in terms of what each person should be pulling towards. Correct. Correct. And, and usually, and we know a lot of stories um, of companies who needed to have courage in a certain moment of their lives. Usually those moments of truth for companies, sometimes going from series A to series B, that they need to shut uh, down a part of the business, a very, not a very successful vertical, but a relatively successful mm -hmm. vertical to double down on a very successful vertical and maybe lose 50% uh, or 30% of the revenues to scale faster and to have the company um, focus on and, and this creates a lot of fear given the pressure that again, we need to double, triple the revenue and sometimes doing the trade-off in the short term for what are the results uh, and, and the speed of growth in, in the long term. So, very, very good point uh, here and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, and it's going to say in one, um, one example, which is actually from, from before I was invested, uh, you know, a company called Zenjob that we're invested in in Berlin, which is a um, marketplace connecting students into temporary work uh, across Germany. You know, when, when these guys got together, they got legal advice, they put together the contracts they thought would, you know, be right for the regulatory environment and started growing fast, right? While they're putting this all together, you know, going through the phase where mm -hmm. everything was put together with WhatsApp and Google Docs to, you know, building out more and more product. 
And then they hit a point where actually, um, uh, you know, actually they realized that the contract structure they had used was not right for what they wanted to do. Uh, and and in this case, you know, the risk was was actually a different one, which is that the guys are personally liable for breach of employment law in Germany. So the, the risk people are taking at this point is not, you know, slower growth here or there. It's if we get this wrong, we, you know, we, we could lose our house, right? We could, you know, these are yeah. proper, proper risks for the team. And I think at that point, the guys, you know, had a, you know, had a conversation. They decided, look, actually, let's take the time. Let's get these contracts right. Let's, you know, put down a solid foundation, even if it means it's going to slow down our growth for a period so that we can, you know, we can restart growth and accelerate from this point. Right. And they, they did it. It was a, you know, open conversation. They worked out, you know, does this mean differences in terms of the team? And it let them sort of restart for the next phase of growth. Right. But I think that culture of also, you know, just being open with each other and saying, look, are we all, you know, cause different people always have different risk profiles. Right. So, you know, you get it very often with businesses that have been around, you know, much longer than those guys have, right? With there's someone who's running it, who's been running it for 25 years, uh, who doesn't really want to take big risks anymore, right? right? They, you know, they're kind of getting towards the end. They're starting to think about exit. They don't really want to do anything else. And I think the sort of rebalancing that risk profile across the team is also something that's often, uh, you know, catalyzed by investors coming in. It's a very, a very, very good story to. Um, simplify uh, the importance of focus and the importance of taking very different, uh, very difficult or having the courage to take very tough decisions for the best of the company that might be very difficult in the short term, but it's the best thing in the long term. And here that's where also having very good investors backing us and advising us is is important uh, to understand that um, we might need to take another uh, path to get mm. to the same uh, result in the end. And there's a, just as a, a sort of contrast, right? Because the right answer is not always product, right? So I think oftentimes when people are going, going you know, through these stages, uh, you know, there's, a, there's another one of our portfolio companies where the guys are getting frustrated with um, the fact that they had a, a team of people who were taking data from, you know, one format and putting it into another. And they wanted to build something that would automatically, um, in, in, in this case, actually was um, another recruiting business. They, they didn't want to have to get these guys looking at it. They wanted to build something that would automatically uh, understand all this data and reformat it into what they did and mapped out how much development time this would be. And in that case, when we sat down and said, look, what, what is this really costing us? And the reality is they had a team you know, outsourced in another market doing it. It really didn't cost much at all relative to what we made on on each of these placements mm -hmm. in which the right answer is actually forget automating it why don't we just triple the size of that operations team and when we're bigger we can worry about doing it right but at this point very there's just point. other things to, to prioritize very very good point and another another very good point and yeah and, and we we are coming to Rockefeller habit number three, and it was also a very good compliment on Rockefeller habit number one. Again, having different personalities with different profile risks in different moments of their careers, in different moments of their personal lives, um, and kind of understanding well each other, having good conversations, talking about the tough uh, issues and, and making the tough decisions um, together. 
and and here we can also go into uh, some also something which is very relevant in, in in the investment industry, which is should we take decisions via consensus or uh, via a contrarian approach? But let's let's not go into into that direction. If not, it will be almost an episode uh, just about uh, this. So Rockefeller habit number three, it, it's really about execution. So having the proper meeting rhythms in place. So having the daily stand-ups, having the weekly meetings, the monthly meetings, the quarterly offsites, the annual offsites, uh, as we were discussing before, making the time to think about what is the leadership team 2.0, 3.0, what is the focus that we need to do in the next stage of growth, what we need to bring to 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 do to get to the next campus in climbing the Everest, and what is the main milestone, the next mill milestone part for for the company. Uh, usually this is another point where teams and especially founders who come from a startup mindset who don't believe in the corporate world and having a lot of meetings in bureaucracy and they start looking to these meetings as a, a waste of, of their time which is so precious that they should be outside doing things instead of discussing the business aligning people focus accountability and it seems that I they, they sometimes even ask themselves as their life plan, if it doesn't make sense for them to keep leading the company because they are hating what they are doing in this new stage of the company. So do you see this kind of uh, issues happening across your portfolio and how do you help if you see them? Mm. So I think, so I think maybe it is useful to think about what goes wrong with meetings in lots of big companies, right? And I think if you, yeah. you know, start taking an organization that's got, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 people, uh, the reason you have committees and the reason you have these meetings is by and large because people are trying to avoid taking responsibility and avoid taking any decision. Right, that you know, sort of people sit together, they talk a long time, they all look at each other. Very good point. To kind of avoid the fact that there's, in the end, um, you know, if I if I go back when I I did a project with a mining company in South Africa at one point, and as we were thinking about the right organizational structure for their HR team, one of the miners told me, "Look, all I want to know is whose ass do I need to kick if something goes wrong." Right, <laughs> and I thought that was actually a very good explanation of what is a good org structure, right? And I think. You know, so so I think that that's it. If you take these big organizations, that's what's happened, right? It's like it's no longer clear, you know, whose but is actually on the line for this. So then when you think about what does this mean for, you know, a company that's going from 10, 20 people to a hundred, two hundred people, you know, up to the you know, thousand, two thousand level, I think for as long as you can you've got to try and make sure that there's still clear accountability and you know who's doing what. But at a certain point to be able to make decisions, you need to start pulling together information for a set of people who no longer bump into each other all the time, right? When a company is 20 people all sitting in one big room, coordination is super easy. Everybody hears everything else. Somebody will be talking about, you know, the strategic priorities for this quarter and, and you can't afford 10 meeting rooms. So everybody else, you know, here's what's going on anyway, right? Once a company gets bigger, I think what you need is a way for that information sharing to happen. And I think, you know, this is the meetings, right? It's a way of 
filtering this up so everybody doesn't need to sit in everything, but the right people still end up having all the information they need to make those decisions. Right. But at the same time, you've got to try and make sure there's still somebody where you know, okay, here's here's who it was that made the decision. Absolutely. Very, very good point. And and especially on, on this meeting or on this Rockefeller habits, we talk a lot about two tools of, of the framework uh, to help companies to scale, which is the face and the pace. And and the face is is all about what you were saying, just assuring that we have the right people on the right seats executing what needs to be executed. And in terms of the pace is really having the right people on the right processes in order to make things uh, happen and having accountability and focus uh, in place, which means that a person should not have a lot of ads uh, and we should not, not have a strategic area or process or um, outcome of the company that doesn't has, uh, have an owner. Uh, so. If there is no owner, it will not happen. If there is more than one owner, it will not happen as well because they will uh, start looking to each other uh, at the end of the month. And yeah, I thought that you would be doing that. And yeah, I thought you would be doing that as well. And we are right. all busy, especially in, in the in the scale-up world. So uh, and uh, yeah, go ahead. Now, now, the one thing I would add to that is I think uh, clarity about who did what and where's this data coming from and so on uh, does not mean that when things go wrong, you do actually go, you know, kick someone, right? Like, because the other Correct. thing is, that like, with all the companies that we're that we're working with, there's a lot of experimentation going on, right? And and a bunch of the experiments will be good experiments. A bunch of them will be, you know, unsuccessful experiments. Um, but and and I I forget whose whose thing I'm stealing here now. But you know, in the end, sort of even all the failed ones, you're still learning, right? And that way, that there's no failed experiment. You just learn. That these nine ways don't work, and and that's how you work out the tenth way that's actually going to get you to the next level. Thomas Edison. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you <laughs> anyway, are stealing it. Not, not sure uh, how many times it is said, but uh, the idea comes from a very famous quote that I that I can't say, but I, but I know what what, yeah. what you mean. Um, and I think that's the I think that's the thing, right? So putting and I think when and and the frame of it. If people are used to hearing about meetings in big corporates where they're avoiding deciding, they're avoiding anyone having responsibility, I think they just assume all meetings should be that, right? And and we get it a bunch of times from, you know, exactly as you say, right? You'll get the, the CEO of a company who hates the fact that they're in meetings all the time, not sort of doing. And I think that's actually just the natural evolution of the role of, of whoever's running the team. You spend less time in any of these details and more time thinking about how do I get the information flowing to the right people so this decision happens, right? When do I need to reorganize this structure so that that information still gets to the right guy? And Absolutely. you know, how do I try to do this in a way where everybody still feels super excited about what we're building um, and you know, motivated to keep delivering every day? Absolutely. Yeah, all, all very good points and uh, very, very inspiring the way you, you put it. And and. Sometimes even thinking about the decision-making process and defining what is strategic, what is tactical, and what is operational. So if not, sometimes in a founder-centric culture, uh, the majority of the decisions are always coming to the same people, which will create decision fatigue and burnout, uh, and also impossible to speed up execution 
because we are always coming to the same person to take a decision to move forward, with, which creates also the um, another point, which is related with the face and the pace, which is the difference between authority, accountability, and responsibility. So accountability is the person who is accountable, will be counting what we want to achieve and what is the current status and kind of saying, this needs to move forward. It doesn't need that I need to do it, but I need to inform the organization and the responsible people that we need to move forward and find out a solution to move this forward. Authority is the person who has the authority to take a decision about that and the responsibility, usually that's a responsibility of the team as a whole. So even not being part of my job, I'm responsible for the results of the company as a whole, a team as a whole, even if I'm customer success and not in products. So it's not a product issue. No, it's, it's, it's a problem of the company. So it's, it's my problem. It's my responsibility to help to solve um, this. So very, very good points, and and we come to one and of I would the. I say maybe yeah. just one of the right. one of the thought on that, right? I think you know one of the one of the things that sometimes goes wrong is you know a company will get to a certain point, and I don't know they need a new head of sales, a new head of finance, head of marketing, or whatever, and then they take somebody from you know big company X, right? Someone who ran I don't know. Um, I shouldn't name it just in case I accidentally insult somebody, but you know, some <laughs> massive global company, they pick one of the fortune 100 and they hire a guy, someone out of the fortune 100, they, they hire somebody and you know, she's run uh, finance at this big company and you put them into a startup. And I think sometimes what goes wrong is the sort of, to your point, the person who's, you, you get a disconnect in big organizations at some point between the person who's actually doing the work, right? Somebody who's used to just being, Sort of, I think from your thing, accountable and and sort of just sort of pushing things here or there, but who's who's forgotten sort of how to get their hands dirty, right? Whereas Correct. I think with all the stages we're working on, you need somebody who's simultaneously able to sort of get in there, and I don't know, negotiate a financing deal or close a big sale or you know do some big marketing thing, but at the same time has seen enough of these organizations to still be thinking about what it should all look like in the next 12 to 24 months, right? And is, and is building towards those while still able to get their hands dirty, right? And I think that's one of those ones where it's, it's kind of tricky, you know, so at some point, probably, yes, those things separate out, but I think it's, it's sort of also being cognizant of, you know, what are the stages where you still need these together, right? Someone who's, who's going to get in there and do things rather than whose first thing is to hire a bunch of people who then go do things. And, 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 and that's why the ENPS and being able to attract great talent and being able to be a factory of leaders is so important for us, Caleb. So if we are not producing leaders at, uh, at a pace that allows to grow quicker than the business and to grow the current ones that we have in the business as quicker as possible, uh, we might have um, a growth bottleneck. Uh, so I, I love the factory of leaders uh, concept, and that's why it's important to be the best place to work in in the category, the 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 the, the company or the product or the service that the clients uh, love the most in the category. And and that's why we are always talking about Champions League of Business in in venture capital, uh, venture backed businesses, because it's really very high standards, very high quality at the speed of growth that is really overwhelming for any person that is going through the process, even for the most 
uh, experienced uh, ones, as we see again in Olympics, right? That the best athletes, the best tennis players, the best soccer players or football players also are facing a lot of stress, be, even being number three, number two, or, or number one in, in right. their place. And, and I would say actually, um, you know, some, some founders, some CEOs, some, you know, heads of sales when the companies are small, whatever, they will, they will grow and learn and be able to, to keep doing these things. Right. But sometimes the bottleneck is actually, you know, is actually the person themselves, right. Realizing, you know, this is not their, not their forte, right. There, there was one company where uh, the CTO, right. When they started brilliant, technically could code spectacularly, but terrible organization couldn't manage to get his domestic bills paid on time. You know, was always late on all these things and was supposed to be running this engineering team. And, and it took a while, right? The guy was sort of struggling and, 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 and sort of when we, when we took him out of that role and hired somebody else who was just really the head of engineering doing all the product management and let the guy just do the coding without sort of having to manage everybody else, he was actually just much happier. Right, that when we made the change, the guy realized, look, actually, I, I was never really good at that. I, I was feeling uncomfortable, but could, but was critical to the development of the product. Right, like brilliant, knew what was going on. So, I, so I think sometimes realizing when you when you need to know those changes matters, and sometimes it's you know sometimes the egos do come into it. Right. So there's another company where I remember at some point, and I won't name which one it was, but I was at the um, I was at the drinks for the company. And uh, on a Friday night, after a bunch of beers, like I was with some of the salespeople who were complaining about the cap on the commissions. I was asking them, like, well, you know, what, what cap, right? And these guys were all laughing that I didn't know. And, it, and basically, there was an unofficial cap when none of the salespeople could make more money than one of the founders, right? So, you know, and, and it's just, it's clearly broken, right? And, and the net result was people, it screwed the sales process. People would deliberately defer things because they knew they couldn't get paid more for it. And then the way we, we ended up resolving that is somebody on the board at the time, you know, had, had run, uh, you know, very successful business before and had, you know, and, and we got him to speak with, with one of the founders, the particular one where this, this came from and say that, look, at the time he had 20 salespeople who were each making more in cash than him, multiples of what he was making every year, but recognizing that, look, in the end, these people are working for your equity. Right. If they make the company more valuable, it's short sighted to, you know, to think about that constraint. Right. And you have to just realize, you know, they're bringing a lot more to this to this company. Right. And you just need to take yourself out of that. But I think there's always things like this hiding, hiding within companies. And often people don't realize that they've they put these bottlenecks in there. Very good uh, stories, and and thanks for bringing the stories that creates much more value to um, to the audience and, and and to the concepts that we are discussing here. That sometimes are a little bit theoretical, but having your stories and real examples of your portfolio is, is really super um, helpful. So and and we are coming to to an, to the end of the of the podcast. And I need to apologize our audience and yourself, Imran, as well, because we had a lot of technical issues during this um, podcast. Not sure what is happening between the connection in, in, between Zoom and um, Facebook Live. Uh, but I think that's a, a good part of, of the episode is being covered. So maybe later we'll need to have you back to kind of approach another, another stories. But, uh, but before, coming to an end, there is still a, an important topic 
that we can never avoid when we are talking about businesses that are growing at, at this pace, which is the importance of cash. So, and we all know that if we run out of cash, we are out of business. And uh, is there any kind of examples or any kind of um, tips or, or uh, advice that you give to your portfolio in managing well their cash in having enough oxygen, but not also spending too much, uh, but at the same time being aggressive. So how should we manage cash? Uh, that, that's a very broad question, but we also given your background, you might be able to help us to understand this concept better. Right. I, so, you know, I've invested across uh, gaming businesses, e-commerce businesses, SaaS businesses, marketplaces. And I do think actually, you know, in the end, across all of them, I like to draw a simple chart, which is just, you know, on the x-axis, how many, um, you know, months since you signed up a customer, and on the y-axis, what's the total cash you've got out of that customer, right? And and every investment has a J-curve, right? You have to spend money on marketing, you have to spend money on sales, you have to spend money on onboarding, and then along the while, hopefully you bring in somebody you're making money out of over time, right? You get annual payments on assessing, et cetera. But I think being very clear about the unit of growth. So it might be a salesperson, and think about do I hire another one or not? It might be a branch, do I launch another one or not? It could be a city, kind of the unit for each business varies, but I think you need to be clear, what is the unit that matters for your business? And then what are the real economics of that? Right? And I think as long as people are clear on what's going on and that if you're in a phase where you're burning money, you're confident that you're doing it because you're going to make more money in a reasonable timescale, I think you know, then I'm 100% a fan of growing faster. But you need to be clear on it, right? And I think as a, as a sort of um, perhaps counterexample, I, I would say if you remember when you know, Groupon was first going public, they came up with this concept of EBITDAM, right? The EBITDA excluding right. all their marketing, which was because they were burning all this money and their idea was they were creating value on that. But in the end, actually, you know, the, the, the cash was telling the truth, right? They were pouring loads out, not getting as much in as they should have at that time, right? Although obviously they, they sorted a bunch of things out afterwards. So I think being clear on that really, really does matter. And I think what has made that harder for people is that in the last 10 years, there's so much more money coming in to fund private companies that you can actually hide it for a long while. You know, if you're a public company with 10 billion of revenue, funding losses of a billion a year used to be very difficult, right? Still, still is in the public markets, right? But, yeah. but you know, kind of changing maybe with some of the IPOs recently. But if you're burning 10 million a year or 20 million a year or 30 million a year, actually, there's a, there's a lot of people who are still funding those. And, and people can end up sort of convincing themselves on, you know, what are fundamentally not solid economics, right? And I think this Correct. is just a little bit of temperament, but I do think, yeah, just focus on what is the unit of growth that matters for your business? And then, you know, what is the cash that goes in to launching one and that you get back over time? Very good point. And is there any example of a unit economic that is relevant, especially for a SaaS on enterprise business? 
Well, there it's it's often the uh, salespeople, right? Or we'll look at how long does it take to ramp up a salesperson? You know, when do they get productive? What are they bringing in over time? Uh, and or looking also just sort of per customer economics, right? And understanding kind of exactly as I was saying there, right? Like what's the sales process? What's the implementation? When are they paying back? You know, those are the two most obvious when you're looking with the SaaS businesses. Got it. Very good point. And just um, also a, a final point, which is not so much related with cash there, but it's also related with your uh, the speed of growth, which is the the SaaS napkin, which is always a very good reference and benchmark to to me. So for the ones who, who don't know in the audience, the SaaS napkin, uh, you can just Google it. And Christoph Jens, which is one of the partners of Point Nine Capital. In, in Berlin that is uh, invests across SaaS and marketplaces. The SaaS napkin, as, as the name says, it's for SaaS businesses. And um, he, he believes in a certain uh, growth rate, uh, namely 2, 2.5 or 3x, depending on the stage of the growth. And if I'm not wrong, the SaaS napkin has seed stage, series A stage and series B stage. I think there was any version that had Series C, but I, nowadays I think that especially the last version where I'm aware of uh, doesn't have Series C um, anymore. So uh, again, uh, I asked this question in our last VC interview. Uh, do you believe that this kind of double, triple, or 2.5x uh, um, growth is really important to happen in order to stay uh, on our pace to be category leader and also to be interesting to uh, attract the right investors for the next round and to be able to accomplish the milestone in order to get to the BIAC. So what, what is your opinion on this? So I, I really like the point nine guys, actually, and I think they, you know, they got their heads properly screwed on there. Uh, I think you can even order the napkin off them online. So yes, you, you can. can. <laughs> uh, I'd say, you know, for me, for me, the you know the thing that there are lots of people out there now who will get excited and fund a business just because of the top line growth, and and I think many who, to my mind, do not know enough or do not care enough about what's going on under the hood to know if that's sustainable. And it's literally a thing that we I was debating with somebody at, at lunch yesterday um, as to whether. You know, what do we cost our portfolio by telling them, look, actually build a sustainable business that works? Because maybe that's actually harder to fund in this environment. Maybe we should be telling them to put their foot down, don't worry about it, right? But I think in the end, <laughs> you have a sustainable business, you know your economics are strong, you're growing at a growth rate that is you know, good, right? I think there's not anything, um, I think like everything in our portfolio is like north of, 50%, right? I think the, we looked at it and the aggregate was like 80% something year on year last year. And they're all at very different different stages. But I think with all of them, what we're focused on is, are, are they solid businesses? And as long as they're solid businesses, I think then the key driver of how fast you grow is how much you're investing. And I think that's a that's a trade that everybody makes differently and makes different sense for those. But I think that's that's to me the key thing, like make sure you build something solid and you know, when every downturn comes, people suddenly remember that actually you do need to make cash to stay in business, right? People forget about it in bull markets. Yeah. They forget about it when it's easy to raise money, but it will come back, right? And then if you know you're solid, um, 
I think that was Buffett, wasn't it? Right. It's when the tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming naked. Correct. Uh, <laughs> corrected me last time we were talking about that one. That's exactly that, right? So I think that's that's the difference, right? The guys with good unit economics are wearing that like a shield. Absolutely. Very, very good points. And yeah, lots of opinions uh, here. And, and good to see this this healthy approach on, on the investment side um, as well. And we could go also here in the discussion of European American style, which is also very common in a lot of blog articles. So when we now are really coming to an end and uh, one of my favorite questions, which is uh, if you would have the opportunity to meet yourself, Imran, uh, at the beginning of your investment or VC or corporate VC career, uh, what would you tell you? Or what advice would you tell you in, in one sentence? You know, I think I think in the end, it's, it's always just realizing, uh, it's always just realizing that in the end, you know, you should care less what other people think. Right. I think with all these things, as many times we've looked at a business, we've decided it was it was good, it was not good. Somebody else does the deal. Somebody else raises a lot of money in a vertical, and everybody wonders, you know, are we doing the right thing? And I think the the thing to realize is, especially in our industry, the cycle is so long, you won't really know for another five years or ten years for some of them whether you are right on that call or not. Uh, and I think it's the same with founders running businesses, right? Like this is not a this is not a sprint. You know, it's going to be over years that you doing the right thing is going to pay out in in success. Uh, so I think you know, try to be try to be even more patient and and think you know, five years, ten years out would be the thing I try to tell the the younger self. That's that's an amazing uh, tip. And um, again, apologies, Imran, for for the technical issues that we had today, and we'll and. I think that will not have the full uh, episode uh, and, and the full lessons that you shared so preciously today. Uh, we covered just three of the 10 habits uh, and uh, a lot of lessons and, and stories from yourself. So which means that you, we have at least another seven uh, to cover together <laughs> in upcoming uh, episodes. So you are invited to come to the show uh, whenever you want uh, to share additional stories of your portfolio. And thank you so much for, for joining us uh, today. That's good. Thanks for having me, Miguel. A pleasure. So uh, for our community, uh, yeah, as you know, it's, it's really a pleasure to host you and to welcome you every week. Uh, we compress the key lessons, and we are totally obsessed about this, of scaling a company from 1 million 200 million uh, annual recurring uh, revenue. You can watch, listen this episode when it's most convenient to you, where it's most convenient to you on Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, um, iTunes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the common, the, the, the key platforms, uh, we have the episode available. There is an article with a summary that will be published uh, soon in our blog at skillupvalley.com. Feel free to suggest us new topics, new guests that you'd like to see in the show in order to keep our mission of helping the leading scale-ups of today become the tech giants of tomorrow. So see you next week or very soon as we are already on almost 75 plus episodes at this stage uh, during the last uh, two years and, and working on the mission since 2013. 
So see you soon and thank you very much for making your time.